So, as I said, we came back from vacation. We lived for almost 16 years in San Diego. So we went back there, not so much for sightseeing, but to see a bunch of friends. And we traveled a lot. We did a lot of driving. And one of the things that I learned is you go on a journey and you spend a lot of your time waiting. Especially you go SoCal, you're waiting in traffic. And you come to a red light every once in a while, right? And you come to a red sign. What's that red sign say on it? Stop! And so you're waiting. And you're waiting. Seems like sometimes you're waiting half the time before you get to your destination. Have you discovered that life is like that too? That life is a journey and it seems like half the time you're waiting. Half the time there's a red light. Half the time there's a speed bump. Half the time you're in stop and go traffic. And if you're not waiting right now, you were or will be. Because that just, that's how life works. Hopefully it's not something really serious, like those, uh, the wild boars uh, soccer team in Thailand that were in a cave. A friend of mine's from Thailand. He said that he doesn't know how they got out of that cave. Could you imagine waiting there for days on end to get help? Or another friend of mine who's claustrophobic, worst nightmare, she got caught in a crowded elevator. Boy, just minutes going by. But maybe it's just you're waiting for escrow to close. Or maybe you're waiting for that promotion. Or maybe you're waiting to go away to, to college. And the closer you get, you ever notice the closer you get to go, and I talked to my niece, she's going away to college. She says, every day, Uncle Ron, it, I get more antsy. You know, it, it gets harder to wait when she goes away for the first way to day to school. And when we came home, we found that um, while we were gone, we, have, we know we had this house that we got during the recession on the river. And, but there's, the house is kind of funky and has some weird problems, and we, we replaced some of the tile on it. And when we did that, while we were gone, they found mold on some places. So now we're waiting for the leak person, and then we're waiting for the insurance person, right? And then we're waiting for the floor to come in, because we don't have a floor right now. And then it sucked up all the dust, and then we had to get the AC fixed. So we were waiting for the AC to be fixed. And then the cat got skittish and did her business downstairs. We're waiting for SPCA. <laughs> That's what I felt like. Okay, I got over that one. Got over that one. Um, but it, it just seems like we're waiting all the time. Or do we ever wait for things as a church? Yeah, you bet we wait for things. We waited for our property. We got it. Now we're, now we're waiting for our elders to be put in place. We're waiting for more training. We're waiting for our building to be built one day. We're waiting for the expansion of buildings into satellite campuses, which we'd like to do, and just continue to expand to reach this community. We're waiting to see how our uh, things develop in terms of missions. And you know, as, as I am certain that I'm going to have a floor one day, I am equally certain that we're going to have a building one day and we're going to expand. Sometimes I doubt it. I doubt I'm going to get a floor sometimes. But I know I'm going to do it. I wouldn't be here if I didn't believe it. But we're waiting. And so while we're in that waiting stage, as we get closer, because we know it's going to be God's timing, we need to, to do things in God's way. And so we thought it'd be kind of fun to go through a series called Wait. And we're thinking, like, who could we look at? And you know a good guy to look at is a guy named David. Because David waited. And depending on how you calculate it, he waited seven to ten years for what? To become king. So David's a teenager, and Samuel comes into town. Uh, Christy Gage used to go here until she went off to, um, to uh, medical school. She used to say, every time I talk about David, she thinks of um, 
she thinks of the trilogy of the rings, you know, the, all of the, the, the stuff about, uh, you know, Tolkien's classic and the Lord of the Rings and all that. And, and it kind of like that. I mean, when I think of Samuel, I kind of think of Gandalf coming to town and he comes in and he sees David and David's a teenager and he says, basically, the king has abdicated the crown. Spiritually, he's abdicated. He's turned away from God. King Saul has turned away from God and you're going to be the king someday. I'm going to anoint you, but you have to wait until that time comes. So David, you know, he kills a guy named Goliath, and most of us got that one. Goliath is out of the picture, and then, but we don't really remember that he becomes the hero of Israel. Uh, Saul makes him his captain of his bodyguard. He marries Saul's son, uh, Saul's, not his son, so marries his daughter, Michael, and then Jonathan becomes his his brother-in-law and Jonathan becomes his best friend. He's the heir apparent and everything's going well. And Jonathan even says, hey, you know, if dad dies, basically he intimates, I, I'll be your right man. I'll, I'll give you the crown because I know you're the guy to rule. So he's waiting for that time. But Saul becomes more and more embittered. And he's not just insane, but the Bible tells us that, that he is having demonic influence on his life. And he's oppressed and he becomes very angry and jealous of David and he tries to kill him. And David is forced to flee. And David becomes a refugee and he gets some other guys around him. And instead of waiting on God, he tries to do things in his own way. And we're going to talk more about that next week, uh, some of the consequences that came with that. But suffice it to say at this point, and when we look at what David will say later, repenting about what he did, and we look at what he writes in his Psalms about this period of time, David got out in front of God. And now he sort of levels off and he decides he's going to wait on God. And this is going to be the foundation for what we're going to talk about today. Just five verses as we talk about David coming to the point where he basically says, until God directs, I'm going to wait until God directs. When God tells me to go, I'll go. But I'm learning that I need to wait. So let's read the passage today. It's found in 1 Samuel chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him, and he became their leader. About 400 men were with him. From there, David went to Mizpah and Moab and said to the king of Moab, Would you let my father and mother come and stay with you until I learn what God will do for me? There's the key verse, until I learn what God will do for me. So he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him as long as David was in the stronghold. But the prophet Gad said to David, do not stay in the stronghold, go into the land of Judah. So David left and went to the forest of Hereth. First thing I would say that we need to keep in mind while we're waiting is to keep good company. We need to make sure we keep good company. Now the backdrop to this is David went to Gath, which was the home of, of Goliath, and was part of the Philistines, you know, right in the heart of Philistine area. These were enemies. And, you know, he, he kind of, he, he offered his services, but it appears that he was doing it with the effort of working as sort of a spy, and things blew up. And long story short, he left with his tail between his legs, and he ran back to home. But now he has the Philistines in his rear, and in the front of him he has Saul and his army. So where is he going to go? So he goes to the southwest slopes of Judea or Judah in those days. And he, remember he's from Bethlehem. Now he's about halfway between Bethlehem and Gath and he finds a little village called Adullam. There was a sign in front of Adullam that said, nothing dull ever happens in Adullam. Do you believe that? 
No, but anyway, just to wake you up. Um, so as he gets there in Adullam, and what he finds in Adullam is a cave. Now, he's a shepherd boy, right? So I'm, I'm thinking, if I'm a shepherd, I'm going to know all the caves around the area. Right? So he knows the caves. We don't know where this cave is. I know that there are tourists that you could, tour guides you could pay that could show it to you if you pay them enough. But we really don't know. People will say this is the cave, but we don't know. But there are caves in that area. And David had one that became his hideout. And so he goes to this cave, and David is there by himself. They didn't all come there at once. And maybe he has, I guess he had a few guys with him to start with. But this is a private place for him to kind of reconnect and get things right with God. Remember the old Beach Boy song, In My Room? We heard that the other day. In my room, uh, there's a place where I can go and tell my secrets to. Do you have a room that you can tell your secrets to? Do you have a place where you can meet God where you're uninterrupted? Adullam was that place for David. It was a place where he got away and he got his head together. David was really, really struggling. We all need a place um, where we can go. And I don't know, you know, when we talk about this whole idea of, you know, keeping good company, are you keeping good company, you know, where you would go. I don't know where you go to do that, but it could be in your bedroom. It could be in the closet. It could be in a basement if you have one or an attic. It could be out in the woods. It could be in a car. I've used just about every one of them. But where can you get alone? Where can you spend that time reorienting yourself? Singing to God? Listening to maybe music? Talking to him? Praying? Pouring out your heart? Because that's what David does. And you say, well, you know, how do, how do we know that's what David did? Well, because we have his writings about that time. We're almost certain that he wrote Psalm 34, Psalm 57, and Psalm 142 at that time. I'd encourage you to go read those today. Psalm 34, 57, and 142. And just think through them and, and pray through them and think about what David was thinking about this time. Here's a couple samples. In Psalm 142, verses 4 through 5, it captures the situation. He says, I have no refuge. No one cares for my life. He tells God that. He's honest with God. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt like, God, we're just not getting anywhere here. And nobody cares about me. That's how David felt. And then David goes further and he, he paints a pitiful picture in Psalm uh, 57 verse 7. He says, I am in the midst of lions. I lie among ravenous beasts, men whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. We think of David fighting a physical battle, but isn't it interesting that the thing that bothers him the most is the bad things that people are saying about him. Nothing hurts more than when people turn on you, the people that are your friends, and say bad things about you. But in the very next verse, he responds with these words. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. He is confident God's in control and he clings to his sovereign plan. And then he writes in Psalm 34, I sought Yahweh, that's God's personal covenant name, he uses, and he answered me 
and delivered me from all my fears. And again in verse 8, taste and see that Yahweh is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Do you understand where he's taking his refuge? His refuge isn't really in the cave of Adullam. Where is he finding his refuge? In the God of the universe, right? Is that cool? So David's hurting and he's finding comfort in God. Now, it's important to keep good company. And ever since I was a kid, I've heard the adage, keep good company. Keeping good company starts with your relationship with God. That's the one you need to mostly keep good company with. I don't know if you were praying today when you got up. I hope so. Did you pray on the way here? Have you yet confessed how you yelled at your parents or how you yelled at your kids on the way here in the car? Because it happens sometimes. I think it happened to us once. Okay, okay. So, um, you know, so those are, those are things that we do. Where, where are you going to meet with God this afternoon? Are you looking forward to that time? Do you have a place where you meet with him? Do you have a time to just get alone with him? We need to do that. We need to do it regularly, and especially when times are hurting. And these are three, three psalms that we can read as we go through that time. But I encourage you to pour out your heart to him because he already knows what's going on. What are you holding back from God? What are you keeping from him because you can't keep anything from him? So give it up and get it out. One of the most unpopular, most difficult verses in the New Testament, in the Bible, is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18. It says, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. You know why it's unpopular? Because it, it's baffling. You mean I'm supposed to thank God when somebody dies? I'm supposed to thank God when I lose my job? You know, I'm supposed to thank God when somebody that I love turns against me? But that's what David is doing here. He's praising God in the midst of his hard times. He's trusting in God for what he cannot himself understand or explain because he knows God's in control of it. I remember a couple of years ago, um, Kelly Gall threw a surprise party for Jeff. Um, and they're not here today, so I'm going to so just say it since they're not here. But anyway, what she did is she, she kidnapped him and blindfolded him, and she took him, and then it was a surprise party. Now, imagine if Jeff had said, no, you're not going to kidnap me, and he got in a car and he drove out of town. What would have happened? Would have ruined the party. Would have missed out on all the blessing. A lot of times, our lives are like God's kidnapped us and we're blindfolded. Don't fight it. God knows what he's doing. Thank him in advance. Because when you take off the blindfold one day, you'll be surprised at what God has done and how much you didn't understand. And so we learn to thank him and essentially just say, we trust you with this, even though we don't get it. So, so that's what he's saying there, and that's really the heart of this message. If there's music that you like, listen to music. If you can sing, you know, I've written some songs, I've... I've I've written some poetry, and they're not really printable material, but that's okay, because it's just for me, right? But if you don't do that, you can listen to music. Whatever really gets you going. You know, I, I even, one of the songs I used to like listen to, there's a song called Invincible, and it was written by Don Ellis, a popular 
trumpet player and jazz musician back in the 1970s. I don't know that he was a Christian, but his dad was a pastor, so I guess it's okay. Um, but, but I used to love to listen. That He has the sax solo in there, and sometimes I remember when I would really be sorrowful, I would just commune with God even listening to that, just listening to the music and just the, the melody, and, the, and, and I could imagine the difficulties I'm going through and how God was getting me through it, and, you know, and, and it just it inspired me. Connect with God. And, and music can, can stir those emotions. But make sure you're connecting with God and talking to him and interacting with him. But you also have other friends. And in this case, some of his friends are his family. David had seven brothers and two sisters at least. And mom and dad. And they all came to be with him. And it was his father's household. Which means it probably wasn't just his family but probably some other in-laws and outlaws and extended family members and maybe even some servants that worked with them, probably at least 8 to 15 people that came from his family. Who are the 8 to 15 people in your life who you most influence and who most influence you? Who are the people you're closest to? It starts with mom and dad and family. But, but who are those people that you can get close to? And what David is doing here, he's in a sense recruiting them. They're coming to him. They've heard he's there, and he's welcoming them in. Have you invited them in to our cave? This is our cave of Adullam, in a sense. This is for everybody. This is our family. This is our army. Have you invited them in? Have you encouraged them to come? Have you told them about Jesus? And it's an opportunity to do that. David does that. He brings them in. But David does more than that. He has people coming that are, you know, poor and who are in debt and who are discontented or literally embittered and sound like kind of a rough crowd, right? But you have to understand, a lot of these people were David's fans and so Saul is persecuting them. And some of them are just poor people who are just discouraged with the corruption of the government. And so they come to David. And some of them are really rough characters and they will create the most awesome army in the history of Israel. David needs to train them to fight. But David is more concerned about training them to live. And I can imagine David playing his lyre like a guitar and singing his songs and teaching around the campfire at night, saying such words as Psalm 34 verse 11 records for us. Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of Yahweh. David was teaching them to fear, in other words, respect and follow God. Are you teaching your kids to respect and follow God? Are you teaching your friends when they come to know Christ about Jesus? Are you teaching those that don't know Christ by the way you live how to follow Christ? Who is it that's your younger brother and sister in Christ that you're helping to teach about the ways of Christ? David did that. And part of that is just who we are. In a sense, every church, in a sense, is a little army of God. I'm the captain, so to speak. Mitch and, and Clifton are the loyal lieutenants. You guys are the group. We all need each other. I need you to pray for me. I need to pray for you. We all take care of each other. We're family. And we're an army. As we learned, as we studied the armor of God, we're an army. We're fighting a battle. Uh, and, and our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of darkness in this world. So we need to pray for each other and we need to fight this battle together as a team. Now, he goes through that and then 
he gets to this next thing and we see that family matters in verses three through four. But David does something really kind of strange. He leaves and he goes to Moab and Moab is very, very, very far away. And in order to go to Moab, you've got to go down like a 3,000 foot descent and then go up 3,000 feet. And that makes me dizzy and it's down by the Dead Sea. So it's like beautiful area. I was talking to somebody on a vacation said they went to the Dead Sea and you just lay down in it and you float. You don't have to be able to swim, you know, you just, you just float. So that'd be kind of cool, but the weather kind of gets hot there and stuff. And um, why did he go there? It's, where he went is actually modern-day Jordan. Why did he go there? A couple reasons. One, he's concerned that his aging parents will probably be persecuted and maybe tortured and killed by Saul. So he's got to get them out of the way. So he goes as far away as he can. He goes someplace that doesn't like Saul, that he knows will, will fight against Saul. And he goes to Moab for another reason that Bible scholars in this room should know. Who was David's great-grandma? Do you know? She had a book in the Bible written about her. Somebody said it. Ruth. Ruth. So David's grandma was Ruth, and Ruth was a Moabitess. So David and his family had Moabite blood in their veins. It's not as far off as it seems. Moab was, uh, was descended from Lot, who was the brother of Sarah. Think Abraham and Sarah. So this is like extended family. But they had fought, most of the Moabites were far away from God. Nevertheless, he goes there and he says, can I have permission to let my parents stay here for protection? And the king says, yes. And they stay at the stronghold. Stronghold means like a big fortress. Where was it? Could it have been Masada? Have you guys heard of Masada? It's a great fortress there, there that, that actually it, the Jewish wars ended in AD 73 where the Jews finally were defeated and slaughtered. Uh, by the Romans, but it's this in, almost impenetrable fortress out there, and that may have been where they were staying, but we don't know for sure. But the point is, he's taking care of his parents. He's taking care of his parents. Um, and the Bible says that we should honor our father and mother, but there are a lot of examples of how we take care of our parents and we take care of our families. One of the reasons that we moved up to Northern California was to be closer to our parents as they're aging. Our sisters live near them and take pretty good care of them, but we want to be available if there's any special needs. Sometimes, you know, it, it isn't always that easy with family, right? Because there's other things that are said. It's interesting. Jesus himself uh, will say to us, and I want to see what was the passage here. Luke chapter 14, verse 26. Jesus says that we are called to hate our family for his sake. Now, that's hyperbole or exaggerated speech. He's not saying hate your parents. He's just saying, by comparison to me, you need to love God first. And he will go on to say, as we get closer to the end times, we'll have more conflicts with family. History has shown that family, a lot of times people, the fa their family is the ones that stick by them the most, but sometimes they're the ones that cause them the most grief. Nevertheless, effort should be made to reach out to your family and to love them. Those are the people that God has placed in your life. So I encourage you today, if your parents are still alive, wherever they're at, um, to call them up. You know, keep in touch with them. Let them know you care about them. If your parents are here in this room, your kid, let them know that you appreciate them. Show respect to them. Good job, Amy. That was a nice smile you gave your dad. So, um, so those are good things to do. But, you know, it's not just our physical family, but in, in church, we're all family, aren't we? And we have older brothers and sisters in Christ. When we went down to San Diego, I remember there were some missionary ladies that I used to meet with that were elderly. And man, 
I just would sit with them and talk, and they would, we would pray together. And it was like by osmosis, you know what I mean? I felt like I, it's like, remember when Elisha says to Elijah, I want, I want his mantle, I want part of him when he goes. Um, and you want to be around people that love the Lord because when you're around them, it really encourages you. Your, your mom's like that. When I'm around your mom, her name's Ruth, you Stephen say, I just feel that way. You know, it's the same kind of thing. It just, you sense this is a person who's known the Lord and walked with the Lord for a long time and just being with them encourages me. Um, I encourage you to find people in this church fellowship and in your life that are older brothers and sisters in Christ that you can learn from, that you can glean from their experience and whom you can serve and let them know how much you love them. Sometimes it might be just a little bit older. I, was, I, I had other experiences last week. I was, um, went to church and we brought a friend with us to church who's recently widowed and helped her connect with the church. And uh, while we're in the church, I see this old friend of mine. And Carrie's walking in front of me, and she always darts in and out, and I can't ever keep up with her. So I'm, at least I'm tall enough, I can see where she's at. And there she is. And I saw that she's right next to Mark. I go, Carrie! She looked around, and I said, Mark! So she said hi, and it was my old buddy Mark. Um, Mark and I give each other a big bear hug. You know, we used to, I wish Clifton was here, um, Mitch, he'll appreciate this. We used to have a Bible study at 6 o'clock in the morning. Yeah, so that's Mitch's time. Clifton doesn't like that time. I don't either, really, but I don't know why we did that. I, I think it took ages off my life, but we did that for several years. We'd get up at 6 o'clock. Well, we'd meet at 6 o'clock um, on Wednesday mornings, and there were about five guys, and we really were there for each other. Mark was my big brother. You know, he's six, seven years older than me, um, and, we, and he, was, he was the Sunday school teacher for my son, too. Um, and Mark um, had lost his daughter in a tragic accident. And when we lost our son to leukemia, uh, Mark was there. He was there for me. He was my big brother. I remember he spoke at the memorial. He got up and spoke a little bit. And I remember him giving me, he, he had, a, son, he had a, a lady who used to babysit his kids. And the lady was very young. She was still in her 20s. And she was, had gotten remission from cancer and gotten married. And then it came back and she died. And, and her husband wrote a beautiful CD out of that experience. And, um, and the CD became famous, actually. And he gave me the CD, and the guy's name was Jeremy Camp. And, and he's become popular since. And so he gave me this. He said, Jeremy was married to this lady who meant so much to us. And we got this CD, and, and it's really ministered to me. I think it'll minister to you. And he gave me the CD. There's a song that I still believe. That song, I mean, I, I, I listened to that song through tears for a long time. You know, uh, I still believe in your faithfulness. I still believe in your love. I still believe in your holy word. Even when I don't see, I still believe. That's what, David is, that's what David's going through here. He doesn't see how it's going to work out, but he believes. And he has friends that come along. He has older brothers and sisters in Christ who come along and say, I'm here for you. Felt good to give Mark a big hug and to drive in his Tesla, and he treated us to lunch. So good to have big brothers like that. Okay? So um, different world down there, by the way. Um, so now we want to look at this last area. Do what you're told. Do what you're told. Parents always say, do what you're told, and we need to do what we're told. Um, Gad is in this picture. Gad comes and talks to David. Now, who's Gad? Gad's a prophet or a seer. And in those days, every king had a prophet or a seer. So Saul had Samuel. Maybe this was his understudy, and he has defected to David. And he's basically a spiritual advisor. 
So David has a spiritual advisor, and the spiritual advisor says, you know, time to go home. Gad is a significant guy. You know, later David, he's a musician, I guess, because David will have him organize all of his musicians later in the temple. And he will actually confront David later in Psalm, in 2 Samuel 24. And he also will compile much of what becomes First Chronicles stories about David. So interesting guy. But, you know, he's a guy, obviously, that David trusts. And he says, it's time to go home. And there's a couple things that are interesting here. One is, I don't know that I'd want to stay where he was. It gets blazing hot there at certain times of the year but I wouldn't want to go to the place where I'm hunted. And he goes home to Hereth. We don't know where the forest of Hereth was for sure, but it was probably back around Adullam. And so David returns. Um, we need people. We need people in our lives to help us know what to do. Now, one of the curious things about David is sometimes it just sounds like David's situation is no different than ours. But we know from the teachings of the New Testament that God does not come and regularly reside in us through the power of the Holy Spirit until later days. So exactly what was going on with David, we're not always for sure. But we can say, at least for us, we can say, how do we know what God is telling us to do? And there's a couple ways we can do that. I think one way is we pray. And you just lay it out there. You just kind of say, there's all my options, God. What should I do? And you pray about it, and you have a friend pray for you. And it's amazing how often... It just sort of, yeah, of course. But a very important factor is the Bible. If the Bible disagrees with it, then you don't do it. If the Bible agrees with it, if you, do, you do it. If it doesn't, it's usually giving us guidelines. So we look for the guidelines and we follow those guidelines as best we can. We had a lady that stayed with us in our Airbnb recently. And she found out I was a pastor and she said, you know, can I get you some advice? She says, I have a boyfriend and we're really close to getting engaged but my parents want me to go home every weekend and we hardly ever spend any time with each other and he wants me to stay down a little bit more what should I do so we looked at the guidelines honor your father and mother don't don't neglect them but if you're going to marry somebody you're going to become one with them so can you take him with you sometimes and can you maybe tell mom and dad that you're going to have to spend a little bit less time and you know there's some guidelines that the bible gives us and we we walked through that and, and charged her a little bit more. Um, no, we didn't charge her anymore. But, um, but, it was, but you know, those are, those are the kinds of things that you just kind of work through, and there are balances that God um, will give us. So you need people, though, in your life. And I know for me, when I was out of ministry for a while, it was a really hard time, and I had a buddy of mine who contacted me, and he said, you know, we need to get some guys around you to pray for you. And I got five guys around me started praying for me, and ultimately I uh, came into ministry here, and they continue to pray for me. And I've just found through the years how valuable it is to have people like that in your life. Solomon writes in Proverbs chapter 15, verse 22, plants fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors they succeed. Who are your advisors? Whenever you have a major decision to make, who are the people you can talk to? spouse, obviously, but are there some other people that the two of you can talk to? Who are people you can look to for advice that will give you objective and honest answers? And sometimes they're different people for different things. So pray about who those people might be. And then be willing to go and do whatever God tells you to do. Are you ready to? Would you do anything God asks you to do? Good article Autumn wrote on Michelle this week. Michelle 
You said you guys left. Michelle was famous. She was in, in the newspaper, so I can pick on her. And, uh, and she, said, she said, I didn't want to leave home, but as she did, and she and Blake, I remember you guys going away. We didn't want you to leave, but it was a good experience. And sometimes God is calling us to leave, and he'll bring us back. Sometimes he doesn't bring us back. We don't always know what he's going to do. But would you be willing to leave? Would you be willing to change your job? Would you be willing to break off a relationship if God told you to? Uh, one of our friends that we went to visit, her daughter is uh, 24 years of age and she's going through a bone marrow transplant. It's really hard. We went and visited with her in the hospital. A lot of tears, a lot of pain. She's doing well. But, you know, her daughter told her something. She said about a year or so ago, she said she was driving by herself and she said she just felt God's presence and she said to the Lord, I, I'll do whatever you want me to do. I'll do whatever you tell me to do. And then she said to her mom, she said, I didn't think he'd want me to go through cancer. That's a profound thought. God's in control. He's not the author of evil. But when you go through tough times, are you willing to do, are you willing to go through whatever journey God takes you through? And so I encourage you to, to be willing to do that. David was, and he came out on the other end, and he's one of our heroes today because of it. In his book, The Making of a Man of God, Alan Redpath notices that today's narrative is, is actually an analogy on the narrative of David, uh, of Jesus, his descendant. You know, it's very fascinating because David is the anointed king of Israel. Jesus is the anointed king of the planet. Jesus' title, Jesus, the Messiah, or Jesus Christ, means in Hebrew and Greek, the anointed one. Jesus is the anointed one. David comes to his people, and the people basically don't back him initially. Some do, but most don't, and he's forced to run out like a fugitive. Jesus comes to his people, and they reject him. So David takes the people out by himself. You know, he, he, he takes these poor people himself, takes the poor people, and Jesus goes to Galilee and gathers poor people around him. And they both train their people. And David trains his people for physical warfare, but Jesus trains his people for spiritual warfare. David is separated from his parents. Jesus is separated from God the Father. Eternally one with him, and yet there's this moment of separation on the cross that is impossible to fully understand or explain. And so we see the sacrifice that Jesus makes on our behalf. Jesus, David fights a battle to become king and help the people of his day. Jesus fights the battle to save the world. And all of us can come into a relationship with Jesus. And if you haven't yet come into a relationship, I want you to, to recognize that what David is saying so many centuries ago isn't much different than what we would say today. You know, what, what David is saying is that he recognizes he's a sinner in need of a savior, right? He recognizes he's an imperfect guy. He can't make it. You know, he knows that he's, you know, he's under the law, and in a sense, we're still under the law if we don't know Jesus, really. Um, and life is empty, and life seems futile, and we never seem to measure up. David knew that. And David knew he needed a Savior. He even writes about the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the Christ. And I believe that David would have believed in the Christ. I really believe he would have believed in Jesus. And the reason I do is because he believed in everything else God told him to do. He invested in the promise of the Messiah. And when Jesus died on the cross, he cashed in on that promise. And he will we'll meet Jesus, David, in heaven. 
But Jesus died on the cross and he rose from the grave. And if we believe that, and if we choose to follow him and put our faith in him alone, then we come into relationship with Jesus. And if you haven't yet done that, I encourage you to come and talk with us today that you might come to know him too. I think it would have been pretty cool, but difficult, to be among the first to follow King David. But how much better to be those that follow King Jesus. Join me in a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for this example. And pray for each of us that you'd help us to grow more deeply in our relationship with you. If somebody here doesn't know you today, our prayer is that they'd come and talk to us, that they would truly surrender their life to you. And if they do know you, Lord, as most of us, I think, would say we do, we'd just pray for personal growth in our relationship with you, that we would get closer to you, that we'd hang on to you as we're waiting in life and derive our strength from you and from the others that you place in our life. And we pray that we would rejoice in you as our Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.